So we are nearing the conclusion of our study through Psalms. And we're going to be doing a review here in a couple of weeks, so I don't, I don't want to take a lot of time and, and review this morning. But our study through the book of Psalms has, has brought us to all kinds of different aspects and things and, and um, ideas to, to point out and to bring up. And I'm, I'm really excited to go back through. I'm hopeful that most of you have read through the book of Psalms. That was the challenge that I gave you a month and a half ago when we were first getting started, that you would read through the entire book. Now, obviously, if you've not started, it may be a challenge to get through it in the next three weeks, but even if you've kind of gotten a little bit behind and having some troubles, I still want to encourage you, go ahead and spend some time reading through the book of Psalms and identifying those different different ways that the Psalms are written. And each one, I, I know there's 150 of them, but each one identifies something different or praises God in a different way or deals with a different topic. And actually next week, we're going to be getting into one that's very difficult, very challenging. It's a type of Psalm called an imprecatory. Uh, the, the idea is that the people are asking God to rain down judgment on someone. And those can be really hard to deal with. But we're going to dig into it because they can also be very, very exciting to understand what's going on with those. But in order to be ready to understand God's judgment and God bringing that judgment and that cry for his judgment, we need to understand what gives him the authority to do that. Why is it that, that God has that right to bring judgment? Is it just because he, he's a big bully and he wants to do whatever he wants to? Or is it because he is the king? Is it because he is in charge? He is the ruler of all. He is the just ruler whose judgment is right and good. I think that as we dig into Psalm 110, we're going to learn some things about why it is that Christ is the perfect king, the great ruler but not only is he a king, we're going to find out he's also a couple more things. We're, we're going to find three different positions that Christ is in, that he fulfills, that he deals with. So we're going we're gonna to be digging through Psalm 110 this morning. I wanted to start off with a question, though. Do you ever come across passages of Scripture that are difficult, that are hard? I, I hear a chuckle. What about ones that you don't want to listen to? Like, it, it's plain and clear. I see what it says. I understand that. Uh, but I don't want to listen to that. You ever, you ever deal with that? Okay. You, you, you can rattle your brain. It's okay. This is actually one of those. Uh, it's similar to Isaiah 53 in that it points specifically at Jesus Christ. And the Jews don't necessarily like that. They don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. But as we, as we dig through this, we're going to find out that modern Jews, they, they kind of either ignore it or they reinterpret it or, or they try and, and find a way around it. And, and really, that contains a warning to us that we need to be very, very careful not to ignore passages of Scripture that are uncomfortable or bypass ones or, or not listen to or pay attention to ones just because we, we don't like what it says or we don't care for the implications. If God's Word says it, then that's what it is. And we need to, to accept that. We're actually going to find out that, that Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. 
Um, it's used several times. Jesus actually references it and uses it when he's dealing with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were Jews who they were supposed to know the law. They were supposed to know all of the Old Testament forwards and backwards and everything about it. And yet when he uses this passage to talk to them, they're stumped. They're left with an out, out an answer because it says things that they don't necessarily want to acknowledge applies to Jesus. Elsha, do you have the slides? I'm, I'm going to be referencing several different passages. And um, we aren't going to take the time to look up all of them right now. But I want to list them out up here so that you can jot them down and look them up. We, we actually had a conversation this morning I was, I was going to mention... Just because I say that this is what that passage means, don't, don't take it from my mouth. Look it up yourself. Now, during the sermon, you may not be able to flip pages that fast. I understand that. But write them down and look them up and compare it. Because, you know, uh, Jack has made it a point to mention as we were going through the book of Revelation, he's not perfect. He doesn't have it all figured out. Check it yourself. The word of God is perfect. The person who's speaking isn't always. Jim has made the same point, and he brought up this morning that, you know, we, we sometimes we get our references wrong or we misunderstand something or whatever it might be. If ever you find something where Isaac makes a mistake, which it happens, by all means, come talk to me. Let me know. Say, hey, Isaac, I, here's what I heard you say. Here's what the Bible says. Now, it may be that I'm, I'm not articulate and I don't speak well and that you misunderstood what I meant to say. It may be that, oh, you're right. I missed something. And I want to learn. I want to make sure that I am exactly where God wants me as well. So uh, as, we, as you see these, like I said, we may not have time to look up all of them, but I want to encourage you to check those out and make sure that they do line up with exactly what we're talking about. So as I, as I prefer to do, we are going to read through the entire psalm to get started. And then we'll go back and we'll start digging into it. So Psalm chapter one, 110, starting off in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as, a, as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is a psalm. It's, it's one of the songs that would be used to worship, to praise God. Well, what's it talking about? What's going on with all this? The first verse, first phrase says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, the typical translation in English is a little bit problematic. Not that it gets it wrong, but that it uses the same word in English to mean two different things in Hebrew. The first one we've, we've talked about when it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it means Yahweh. That's the name of God, the, the self-existent one the God of the Old Testament. There is one, there's only one. There, there's no comparison, there's nobody else that lives up to, to that name. And so this is God himself says to my Lord. The, the second word there, 
translated Lord is Adonai. It's a, uh, it's a phrase that, that we'll dig into a little bit here in a moment, but it's, it's master, it's Lord, it's sir, okay? So Yahweh says is the first part of this that we, we need to dig into. That's actually a phrase that is used throughout Scripture in a bunch of different places. I've got them listed up here. A bunch of different places, and they are all prophetic. They're all looking forward to something. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 16, uh, Yahweh says something to Abraham because Abraham was ready to offer Isaac. And God makes this promise and this prophecy about what's going to happen with Abraham because of that. There was an outcome because Abraham obeyed God and was, was willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 28, God also says, or Yahweh says, that punishment is coming. He's, he's giving a prophecy, a promise that something will happen because of the grumbling of the Israelites. Now, in both of those, God fulfills that promise. And we, we see that it's not just this idea of, well, he's, he's making a random statement. He's just, just talking because he wants to talk. He's actually making a prophecy or saying something that will happen. He's expressing a promise that will come to be. I've got a couple more examples. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, because Eli's sons failed, God promised that they would all die in a single day. And that happened. The scripture goes ahead and, and records it. God said it. It happened. In 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, verse 33, this is actually through the prophet Isaiah, God promises that he's going to protect Jerusalem from Sennacherib, one of the, the kings that was trying to take it over. Do I, is it second? Like I said, check me, make sure that I get these right. Did I, I said 1 Kings, it's in 2 Kings? Thank you. All right, in 2 Kings, I even have it written down correctly, I just didn't say it right. <clears throat> Uh, in Second Kings is when Isaiah prophesies that God's going to protect them at that time in that location. And what did God do? Exactly what he said. Okay. So when God says it, that settles it. That, that fulfills it. All right. There was an old saying about that. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, God says it. That settles it. And I'm going to believe it because God said it. In all of these, oh, also in the book of Isaiah, it comes up multiple times, many times, as God is making prophecy and telling certain things that are going to happen. Well, it's worthy of noting that this phrase is only used once in the book of Psalms, and it's right here. This is a promise that he is making, that he's saying, I'm going to do this. So the, the reader of this needs to pay attention because something big is happening. This isn't just a, a random little, oh, let's, let's sing a happy little song because we can. It's, it's a prophecy that God is making a commitment, a promise. Something big is going to happen. Well, what is that? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Who is it that he's telling this to? I think that's one of the, the important questions that we need to to figure out, because it could be just to anybody, hey, I'm going to set up this kingdom. That's, that's really what this idea of sit at my right hand, that's a position of authority. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Or till I make your enemies a footstool, well, you will be ruling, you will be king over all these things. But who is he talking to? This is one of those areas where I, I mentioned that the, the modern Jews try and reinterpret this because they don't like the connotations of what it's talking about. He's saying that I'm going to put somebody 
in a high, exalted, ruling position, who is that? It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. Now, like I said, the Jews, are, they're going to try and reinterpret that and say, well, no, this is, this is talking about David. Well, who's the psalmist? Who wrote this? David. So David is the person who says, my Lord. God said to my Lord. Well, who is it that's better than David? Who's higher than David? Who is worthy of that term of respect? We, we have terms of respect in modern times as well, right? They're not used very often, but we may refer to someone as sir or ma'am, right? I mean, it, it's a good idea. It's a polite thing to do. We, we, can, we don't necessarily refer to people as lord or master very much anymore in, in American culture, but there are uh, terms of respect that we can use to point at somebody and say, you know, they're, they are important, they're valuable, they are higher than me. Well, this word, Adonai, it means master or lord, it's exalted one. It's a term of respect that recognizes their authority and their prominence. And so it's not just something to throw around. He's, he's saying, David is saying, that there's somebody that's higher than him, that's better than him. Well, like I said, this comes up several times in the New Testament. So let's go ahead and turn to a couple of those and look them up. First one that I want to take a, a quick look at is in the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. The book of Hebrews is, is fascinating. When I was uh, looking at becoming a pastor and, and getting ready to you know, plan out my first sermon series, a friend of mine said, you know, you, you want to make sure and you preach the whole counsel of the word of God. You want to preach through everything, but don't start with Hebrews because it's hard because there's so much in it and it points back to the Old Testament so much. And you know what that did? It made me want to study Hebrews because it's so hard and there's so much in it. Well, <clears throat> we're not going to dig through all of it, but there is a, a verse 13. Uh, this passage is actually quoted. In verse 13, the author of Hebrews asks the question, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? So it, it's a rhetorical question in which he's saying, you know, obviously, he, God didn't say that to any angel. Well, how does the author of Hebrews know that that's not referring to an angel? Because, I mean, angels are bigger and more powerful than David, right? So that would be one option, except here in R Hebrews, he's saying, no, that can't be. How did, how did the author of Hebrews know that? Any guesses? Any ideas? Let's, let's go and take a look at the words of Jesus directly. In Matthew chapter 22, now, this, this same scenario is set up in, in several of the Gospels. It's also in Mark and also in Luke. But in Matthew chapter 22, we're going to find an exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, they studied God's word. They knew it, like I said, front to back, upside down and left and right. They were well versed. But there were certain things that they just missed. And, and like I said, that really becomes a warning to me. It's, it's really easy to think that we know the scriptures. Maybe you grew up in church and you've been studying them all your life and you, you think you've got it all figured out. And yet there are times in which a simple question, a simple uh, thing comes up and we realize, you know what? We had this huge blind spot and we missed it. 
the question that I have for you, and, and really for myself, because I, I run into the same thing, what do we do then? Do we just forget it and say, oh, no, there's no way that I could ever understand everything? Or do we put up our dukes and say, you know what, we're going to fight for it, and this, this is what I believe, and I'm standing on it no matter what. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to do what I believe because that's what I believe. I hope neither of those. I hope that our response then is to say, you know what, that's a good question. Let me dig in. Let me start looking. Let me, let me re-examine things. Let me take another approach and, and try and understand what the Bible says. Not just because you asked a good question, but because I want to know what the Bible says. I want to know what it teaches. I want to know all of. And that takes years. That takes tons of time. I've talked to some folks and they're like, well, you know, I, I've only been saved for a couple of years and I, I don't know it. I don't understand. That's okay. That's okay. Are you taking steps? Are you working? Are you learning? Are you doing what you can bit by bit? Anyway, uh, that's a little bit of a side note, sorry. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus has a lot of different times in which he interacts with the Pharisees and they ask him questions and he asks them questions and they go back and forth. We get down to verse 41 of Matthew chapter 22. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, the one that they knew was coming. What do you know about him? What do you, what do you have to say about him? Is he... Or whose son is he? And the, the Pharisees, towing the party line, the regular answer that, that everybody expected, they said, he is the son of David. Well, why would they say that? What would cause them to think that? We're not going to take the time right now to go to Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, but that's where one of the passages where God promises David that he's going to have a son and he's going to have a continuing line. And, and God starts to give him a lot of promises on that. There are several others. I've got them listed up there. Psalm 89 refers to it. Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 11. All of those point out the fact that the son of David is going to be the Messiah, the promised one, the savior of Israel. And so they're looking forward to that. They want that. That's one of the things that the Pharisees, they had looked, they had studied, they compared, they understood the Messiah is coming and we're looking forward to that. They, they were ready they thought. But here they're asked a question by that Messiah. In verse 43, it says, He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. They threw up their hands and said, you know what, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to try. Not the right response. He asks them a question, and it's a, it's a tough one, and it's a good one. And it's, it's worth digging into and trying to figure out, okay, how is it that David, David was the greatest king of Israel. He, he started the golden age of Israel. He was given all kinds of promises from God and did great things. Yeah, he messes up too. Well, you know, we acknowledge that. But he was the best king that they had. And God made a promise that, hey, I'm going to send through your line the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. The Jews were looking for him. They wanted to find him. But in their mind, they were looking for someone to save them politically, 
someone to save them from the Roman Empire or the various other empires that had come. They weren't looking for the savior of their souls. They weren't looking for the one who would bring about the complete fulfillment of all of God's prophecies. They weren't looking for the right thing. But Jesus makes it very clear that this is referring to himself, really, to the Messiah, to the promised one. And so how is it then that this is going to take place? How is this stuff all going to work out? Let's turn back to Psalm 110. We find that, that this is specifically talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one who would be that savior. And David recognizes and writes this because God is making a promise. He's prophesying, he's setting it out, the Lord says. This isn't David's opinion, this isn't a hope for or a dream for, this is a promise from God. The Lord says, I'm going to do something. The Lord says to my Lord, and David's recognizing, you know what? There's someone higher than me. I'm not the greatest. I'm not the best. Yeah, David's a great king. Wonderful things are happening. But there's someone higher and better. It's the one that God has promised. It's the Savior of the world. God the Father is talking to God the Son, to Jesus, in this. And he says, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Okay, that phrase, uh, sit at my right hand, there's, there's a lot of significance tied up in that. What is, what is the right hand? In, culturally speaking, in, in Scripture, what is the right hand all about? What does it do? Place of honor, seat of authority, location of power. It's all of those things. And so God, the Father, is saying, I'm, I'm going to seat you at my right hand. That's, that's, I'm going to put you in this position it's a, a significant position. It's the position of authority and power. It comes up in Psalm 118, verse 16, which says, the right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. It also comes up in Romans 8, 34. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. It's also the place where you have the king's ear. He's able to talk to the king, and, and the king hears and understands. It's a position of power. It's a position of authority. It's a position of judgment. It's a position with uh, that level of response where, where it can be heard. Um, another one that I've got listed up there is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. I wanted to go ahead and read that one. Ephesians, there we go. In Ephesians 1, 19, it says, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in that this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the, fulfill, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I hope that you understand, 
I'm not just saying, well, this is, this is Jesus because I think it is, or this is Jesus just because. This is borne out in Scripture that that's who we're talking about. That Jesus is the Lord that David was looking for. And he is put into this position of power and of authority by God. God himself says, sit at my right hand until. He says, I've, I've got a plan. And, and that until is, I've got something that's coming up. When that occurs, that's, that's the reason or the purpose for you to sit at my right hand. Well, what is that? Until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. It is God who is the one who will establish this. Um, it's not something that, that he goes out and does for himself. God's the one who puts him in that position of power and of that position of authority. And it's the, the basis for why Jesus is the king, because God installs him as the ultimate king. Now, we get to verse 3, and I'll admit verse 3 is a very challenging one. Uh, it has several figures of speech. They're a little bit difficult to work through. Um, some of those, I think, make more sense in a Jewish mind in, and in an Old Testament culture than necessarily what we're used to. And so they are, they are kind of challenging when we get to verse 3. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew. Um, I, I worked at trying to figure that one out, and it, it's tough. I, please fully understand. That's a, a very difficult one. The best that I could uh, come to the conclusion of was the same as what one commentator wrote. It says, when Messiah comes to rule over his enemies, his people will willingly join in his reign. That's the, the idea here with thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. That volunteer freely is the idea of like a free will offering. They're willing to give themselves up is, is the idea that's being conveyed there. And, and as I was reading through that, I got thinking about uh, what we studied, was it two weeks ago, with uh, Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's the idea that's going on here, is that they will freely offer themselves. They will be a free will offering in the day of his power. So, uh, again, when the Messiah comes to rule over his enemies, his people will willingly join him. They will be holy in contrast to the unholy whom Messiah will subdue. They will also be as youthful warriors, namely strong and energetic. They will be as the dew in the sense of being fresh and numerous and a blessing from God. And so that's the picture that's trying to be conveyed there. Like I said, it's, it's a, uh, several figures of speech and some difficult things to, to process and, and work through. But I think that the idea being conveyed is that we're looking forward to the time when Messiah reigns. When this happens, not only is God going to put him in charge, but others are going to freely join with that. His followers are, are going to join up and be a part of that. They will be um, th this idea of from the womb of the dawn, in youth, um, as the dew. All of that is picturing this idea that they will be numerous. They will be a blessing from God. It will be fresh and energetic and strong. And then this idea is then brought out um, in our, our study of Revelation. We've seen where these things come up in chapters 5 and chapter 20 where the followers of Christ willingly come and be a part of his kingdom and they want to fulfill whatever role he has put for them and they, they do those things. 
So that's, that's the picture that's occurring in that. Now, that's just the first section of this passage. And we've seen one of three positions or, or jobs that Christ is going to have, that the Messiah, that the promised one will be. And that's a ruler. That's as king. Well, what's the next one? This one's a, a whole lot shorter in number of verses, but could become this huge, long study. We're not going to take, take all the time necessary to do that. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, i got to ask you, what is a priest? Okay, a go-between, between God and men, right? You see, people don't have direct access to God. They need somebody. They need something. The Old Testament sets up a priesthood. We call it the Aaron, the, the Levites and the, the tribe of Aaron, or the family of Aaron, sorry. They are the priests that allow that connection between God and man. But that's not what is happening here. We have a different priesthood that's coming up here. Now, there were no priests in Israel who were both a king and a priest. That was not allowed because the priests had to come from the tribe of, of Aaron. They had to be a Levite, sorry, the tribe of Levi. They had to be of the family of Aaron in order to be a priest. And so Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, right? That's where the, the kingdom is, is all about, and the kings. So he can't be that kind of a priest. And yet, Christ is our go-between, right? Well, the, there's this amazing thing. There's a, a story that takes place back in Genesis chapter 14, where it's just a blip on the map. Uh, you barely even notice it. And if it didn't come up here and in the New Testament, I'm going to guess it would be a lot like a lot of the judges in the book of Judges, where you read the name and then that's about it and it's just gone. Melchizedek comes on the scene. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Now, you got to look at both his name and that title to understand a few things about him. Melchizedek is, the, the name itself means the king of righteousness, and his position is king of Salem, is king of peace. So just the name and title is, is very interesting. He's the king of righteousness and of peace, and that's kind of cool. But Genesis says that he is a priest and a king. Now, that's something different. He also comes up later in um, Hebrews chapters 5 through 7, and I would encourage you to take time and dig into that because there's a, there's a lot in there. Um, the example that is brought up in that section has led some to believe that, it, that in the Old Testament he was a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, others conclude that, he was, that Melchizedek was just a, a regular man that points to Christ. If you want to settle that argument and discussion, study out Hebrews. We're not there right now. We're in uh, Psalm chapter 110. In either case, the example um, uses Melchizedek to point to the position that Christ is going to be in, that he is a priest, that he is a go-between between man and God. In doing that, it's a special, unique different one than what the Old Testament Jews were used to and what they were expecting. In fact, it's an eternal one because here God says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That's a pretty sure thing. No questions, no ifs, no ends, no buts. It's going to happen. The Lord has sworn it. Thou art a priest forever. Forever and ever. 
unlike the Levites who would die and a new king would come, or a new priest would come about and a new one and a new one, also unlike the kings, the, the sons of David who would die or who would fail, in both of these cases, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all of this. He's going to be the king and the priest. We've got one more position that Jesus fulfills. And that's, there's, there's a little bit of a shift that happens in verses 5 through 7. Jesus is then, uh, it, it says the Lord. Now, which Lord is that? Do you remember? Mm -mm. That, that one's not the all caps. It's the capital L lowercase. So this is the Adonai. This is referring to Jesus. So there's, there's a shift that happens here. The Lord is at thy right hand. So Adonai is at Yahweh's right hand. That's the position he's been put in. That's what God is doing. He's going to be the king and he's going to be the priest. Well, what's he going to do? He will, and it lists out six things. We're going to go through them fairly quickly. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift his head. Adonai is at the right hand of God, and he's going to do these six things. He's going to crush the kings or shatter the kings. The idea is that he's going to be victorious over all nations. He's going to, he will judge among the nations. He will be the righteous judge uh, over all disputes. He will fill them with corpses. He's going to be the uncontested victor. There is no one that can stand before him. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Another way of putting that is he will crush the head, which brings to, to mind images of Genesis 3 and the, the prophecies about the Messiah who would crush the head of Satan. Uh, that's fulfillment of prophecy. We get into verse 7. It says he will drink from the brook. This is another of those uh, figures of speech that can be kind of challenging. The, the idea that comes up is that he will be humble. He will... He will he, be willing to, to humble himself to drink from the brook by the wayside. Um, and we can see that in Philippians 2, verses 7 through 9. Therefore, because he has humbled himself, he will lift up his head. He will be exalted on high. Uh, if you want a full and complete understanding of everything that the Messiah is going to do in his ruling as king, as priest... Uh, we actually have a video series about that. It's posted on our YouTube. It's the study of Revelation. Only takes about 50 hours to listen through all of them. What we see here is, I, I see your hand, I'll, I'll get to you in just a moment. What we see here is a prophecy and a promise that Jesus is going to do what we see happening in the book of Revelation. And this is pointing forward to that time of all of the, the things that he's going to do as the righteous king when he comes and reigns and sets up his millennial kingdom, that's what this is prophesying. That's what this is pointing towards, that he will be the victorious king over all things. He will be the victorious warrior that leads his, his army in battle. You, you had a question or a statement? Um, just crush the head. So it's, it's, he will shatter the chief men or the leaders, the head. It, it doesn't specify whether it's um, his specifically, who specifically. It's just he will crush the head or shatter the, shatter the chief, the leadership. <clears throat> so, 
So what? That's, that's how I always like to, to bring things to a conclusion. It's, it's really easy to study things. Um, in fact, I mentioned those 50 hours that you could spend going back, and, and I encourage you to do it. Go back and watch through the, the study on Revelation because there's tons of stuff, and it's so amazing to, to dig into. But so what? What do we do with that? Well, let me ask you a question. Who remembers what the purpose of those 50 hours of the study of Revelation was? Revelation is what? To point to Jesus, right? It's all about pointing to Christ. And so if, if a study of Revelation is, is so that you can nitpick and argue and, and win your battles and, and toe the party line or any of that stuff, like what the Pharisees had studied this passage for, if, if that was your entire reason for going through it, you're missing the point. The point is to point at Jesus. Well, what's the point of Psalm 110? Same thing. It's to point to Christ. It's to point out that He is the ultimate King, the perfect ruler. He's also the priest who brings us access directly to God. He's seated at His right hand. He fulfills a priestly ministry that's better than anything that that man can ever possibly have. That's what the book of Hebrews is talking about in chapters 5 through 7, is that Christ is the better fulfillment, better than Aaron, better than any high priest that has ever been, because he's after this order of Melchizedek. He is directly with God. He is both king and priest. And one day, he will be the victorious warrior. The whole point of the study of the book of Revelation, the whole point of the study of future things, whether in the Old Testament times when it was the Jews or now in our times and New Testament times when we're looking towards eschatology, the whole point of all of that is to point people to Christ. That's what this psalm does, and it does it very well. It points people to the promised one of Israel. The Pharisees missed it. They missed out that this is pointing at the guy that was standing right in front of them asking them the question. It was pointing to Jesus. And we need to not miss those things. Ultimately, this psalm points to the future hope of Israel, but it also points to our future hope, the ruling of Christ, the millennial kingdom. We anticipate, we anticipate the fulfillment of these promises. We long for that righteous ruler to come. We look forward to the kingdom as it is described more fully in Revelation, in Isaiah, in uh, Zechariah, and various other places. Here is just the the slimmest point towards it. Like, go look at those other passages. Go study those, because they tell you all the details. But the point is, we need to worship Him. We need to praise Him. We need to anticipate this and look forward to it. As I said, uh, we've only got two more weeks that we're going to continue studying Psalms. I know we've not covered all of it. There's lots, lots more. I want to encourage you, study out the Psalms. There's way, way more in here that's really cool stuff. In the next two weeks, um, I do want to continue on, like I said, next week's is kind of difficult. That idea of God bringing judgment is not pleasant. And, and imprecatory or asking God for that is hard and difficult. But when we realize that He is the righteous, perfect, holy King and ruler and priest who is there not just to bring judgment, but also to bring many to the Father, and we can point people to Christ, so what? That ought to spur us to sharing Christ with others.
drawing them in because now they can willingly come to him. But there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The truth of the matter is that he is Lord. He is in charge. Will they do it willingly? Only if they've heard. How will they hear if we don't tell them? Something to think about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you have revealed to us a future hope. Lord, this, this life is not all that there is. There's so much more. You have prophecy. You have, have things coming. And you've warned us. Lord, help us not to take that warning just for ourselves, but that we would share it with others as well. The world needs to know who you are that you are righteous and holy and loving, that you sent your only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, we look forward to when you will come and reign in perfection. We desire that. Help us to tell others so that they also would be ready for when that time comes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we are nearing the conclusion of our study through Psalms. And we're going to be doing a review here in a couple of weeks, so I don't, I don't want to take a lot of time and, and review this morning. But our study through the book of Psalms has, has brought us to all kinds of different aspects and things and, and um, ideas to, to point out and to bring up. And I'm, I'm really excited to go back through. I'm hopeful that most of you have read through the book of Psalms. That was the challenge that I gave you a month and a half ago when we were first getting started, that you would read through the entire book. Now, obviously, if you've not started, it may be a challenge to get through it in the next three weeks, but even if you've kind of gotten a little bit behind and having some troubles, I still want to encourage you, go ahead and spend some time reading through the book of Psalms and identifying those different different ways that the Psalms are written. And each one, I, I know there's 150 of them, but each one identifies something different or praises God in a different way or deals with a different topic. And actually, next week, we're going to be getting into one that's very difficult, very challenging. It's a type of psalm called an imprecatory. Uh, the, the idea is that the people are asking God to rain down judgment on someone. And those can be really hard to deal with. But we're going to dig into it because they can also be very, very exciting to understand what's going on with those. But in order to be ready to understand God's judgment and God bringing that judgment and that cry for his judgment, we need to understand what gives him the authority to do that. Why is it that, that God has that right to bring judgment? Is it just because he, he's a big bully and he wants to do whatever he wants to? Or is it because he is the king? Is it because he is in charge? He is the ruler of all. He is the just ruler whose judgment is right and good. I think that as we dig into Psalm 110, we're going to learn some things about why it is that Christ is the perfect king, the great ruler. But not only is he a king, we're going to find out he's also a couple more things. We're, we're going to find three different positions that Christ is in, that he fulfills, that he deals with. 
So we're going we're gonna to be digging through Psalm 110 this morning. I wanted to start off with a question, though. Do you ever come across passages of Scripture that are difficult, that are hard? I, I hear a chuckle. What about ones that you don't want to listen to? Like, it, it's plain and clear. I see what it says. I understand that. Uh, but I don't want to listen to that. You ever, you ever deal with that? Okay. You, you, you can rattle your brain. It's Okay. This is actually one of those. Uh, it's similar to Isaiah 53 in that it points specifically at Jesus Christ. And the Jews don't necessarily like that. They don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. But as we, as we dig through this, we're going to find out that modern Jews, they, they kind of either ignore it or they reinterpret it or, or they try and, and find a way around it. And, and really, that contains a warning to us that we need to be very, very careful not to ignore passages of Scripture that are uncomfortable or bypass ones or, or not listen to or pay attention to ones just because we, we don't like what it says or we don't care for the implications. If God's Word says it, then that's what it is. And we need to, to accept that. We're actually going to find out that, that Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. Um, it's used several times. Jesus actually references it and uses it when he's dealing with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were Jews who they were supposed to know the law. They were supposed to know all of the Old Testament, forwards and backwards and everything about it. And yet, when he uses this passage to talk to them, they're stumped. They're left with an out, out answer because it says things that they don't necessarily want to acknowledge applies to Jesus. Elsha, do you have the slides? I'm, I'm going to be referencing several different passages. And um, we aren't going to take the time to look up all of them right now. But I want to list them out up here so that you can jot them down and look them up. We, we actually had a conversation this morning I was, I was going to mention... Just because I say that this is what that passage means, don't, don't take it from my mouth. Look it up yourself. Now, during the sermon, you may not be able to flip pages that fast. I understand that. But write them down and look them up and compare it. Because, you know, uh, Jack has made it a point to mention as we were going through the book of Revelation, he's not perfect. He doesn't have it all figured out. Check it yourself. The word of God is perfect. The person who's speaking isn't always. Jim has made the same point, and he brought up this morning that, you know, we, we sometimes we get our references wrong or we misunderstand something or whatever it might be. If ever you find something where Isaac makes a mistake, which it happens, by all means, come talk to me. Let me know. Say, hey, Isaac, I, here's what I heard you say. Here's what the Bible says. Now, it may be that I'm, I'm not articulate and I don't speak well and that you misunderstood what I meant to say. It may be that, oh, you're right, I missed something. And I want to learn. I want to make sure that I am exactly where God wants me as well. So uh, as, we, as you see these, like I said, we may not have time to look up all of them, but I want to encourage you to check those out and make sure that they do line up with exactly what we're talking about. So as I, as I prefer to do, we are going to read through the entire psalm to get started. And then we'll go back and we'll start digging into it. So Psalm chapter one, 110, starting off in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. 
in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Thy youth are to thee as, a, as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is a psalm. It's, it's one of the songs that would be used to worship, to praise God. Well, what's it talking about? What's going on with all this? The first verse, first phrase says, The Lord says to my Lord. Now, the typical translation in English is a little bit problematic. Not that it gets it wrong, but that it uses the same word in English to mean two different things in Hebrew. The first one we've, we've talked about, when it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it means Yahweh. That's the name of God, the, the self-existent one, the God of the Old Testament. There is one, there's only one. There, there's no comparison, there's nobody else that lives up to, to that name. And so this is God himself, says to my Lord. The, the second word there, translated Lord, is Adonai. It's a... Uh, it's a phrase that, that we'll dig into a little bit here in a moment, but it's, it's master, it's lord, it's sir, okay? So Yahweh says is the first part of this that we, we need to dig into. That's actually a phrase that is used throughout Scripture in a bunch of different places. I've got them listed up here. A bunch of different places, and they are all prophetic. They're all looking forward to something. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 16 uh, Yahweh says something to Abraham because Abraham was ready to offer Isaac. And God makes this promise and this prophecy about what's going to happen with Abraham because of that. There was an outcome because Abraham obeyed God and was, was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 28, God also says, or Yahweh says, that punishment is coming. He's, he's giving a prophecy a promise that something will happen because of the grumbling of the Israelites. Now, in both of those, God fulfills that promise. And we, we see that it's not just this idea of, well, he's, he's making a random statement. He's just, just talking because he wants to talk. He's actually making a prophecy or saying something that will happen. He's expressing a promise that will come to be. I've got a couple more examples. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, because Eli's sons failed, God promised that they would all die in a single day. And that happened. The scripture goes ahead and, and records it. God said it, it happened. In 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, verse 33, this is actually through the prophet Isaiah. God promises that he's going to protect Jerusalem from Sennacherib, one of the, the kings that was trying to take it over. Do I, is it second? Like I said, check me, make sure that I get these right. Did I, I said 1 Kings, it's in 2 Kings? Thank you. All right, in 2 Kings, I even have it written down correctly, I just didn't say it right. <clears throat> uh, in 2 Kings is when Isaiah prophesies that God's going to protect them at that time, in that location, and what did God do? Exactly what he said, okay? So when God says it, that settles it, that, that fulfills it, all right? There was an old saying about that, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, God says it, that settles it. And I'm going to believe it because God said it. 
in all of these, oh, also in the book of Isaiah, it comes up multiple times, many times, as God is making prophecy and telling certain things that are going to happen. Well, it's worthy of noting that this phrase is only used once in the book of Psalms, and it's right here. This is a promise that he is making, that he's saying, I'm going to do this. So the, the reader of this needs to pay attention because something big is happening. This isn't just a, a random little, oh, let's, let's sing a happy little song because we can. It's, it's a prophecy that God is making a commitment, a promise, something big is going to happen. Well, what is that? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Who is it that he's telling this to? I think that's one of the, the important questions that we need to, to figure out because it could be just to anybody, hey, I'm going to set up this kingdom. That's, that's really what this idea of sit at my right hand, that's a position of authority. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Or till I make your enemies a footstool, well, you will be ruling, you will be king over all these things. But who is he talking to? This is one of those areas where I, I mentioned that the, the modern Jews try and reinterpret this because they don't like the connotations of what it's talking about. He's saying that I'm going to put somebody in a high, exalted, ruling position. Who is that? It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. Now, like I said, the Jews, are, they're going to try and reinterpret that and say, well, no, this is, this is talking about David. Well, who's the psalmist? Who wrote this? David. So David is the person who says, my Lord. God said to my Lord. Well, who is it that's better than David? Who's higher than David? Who is worthy of that term of respect? We, we have terms of respect in modern times as well, right? They're not used very often, but we may refer to someone as sir or ma'am, right? I mean, it, it's a good idea. It's a polite thing to do. We, we, can, we don't necessarily refer to people as Lord or Master very much anymore in, in American culture, but there are uh, terms of respect that we can use to point at somebody and say, you know, they are important, they're valuable, they are higher than me. Well, this word, Adonai, it means Master or Lord, it's exalted one. It's a term of respect that recognizes their authority and their prominence. And so it's not just something to throw around. He's, he's saying, David is saying, that there's somebody that's higher than him, that's better than him. Well, like I said, this comes up several times in the New Testament. So let's go ahead and turn to a couple of those and look them up. First one that I want to take a, a quick look at is in the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. The book of Hebrews is, is fascinating. When I was uh, looking at becoming a pastor and, and getting ready to you know, plan out my first sermon series, a friend of mine said, you know, you, you want to make sure and you preach the whole counsel of the word of God. You want to preach through everything, but don't start with Hebrews because it's hard because there's so much in it and it points back to the Old Testament so much. And you know what that did? It made me want to study Hebrews because it's so hard and there's so much in it. Well, we're not going to dig through all of it, but there is a, a verse 13. Uh, this passage is actually quoted. In verse 13, the author of Hebrews asks the question, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? So it, it's a rhetorical question in which he's saying, you know, obviously, he, God didn't say that to any angel. Well, 
how does the author of Hebrews know that that's not referring to an angel? Because, I mean, angels are bigger and more powerful than David, right? So that would be one option, except here in Hebrews, he's saying no, that can't be. How did, how did the author of Hebrews know that? Any guesses? Any ideas? Let's, let's go and take a look at the words of Jesus directly in Matthew chapter 22. Now, this, this same scenario is set up in, in several of the Gospels. It's also in Mark and also in Luke. But in Matthew chapter 22, we're going to find an exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, they studied God's word. They knew it, like I said, front to back, upside down, and left and right. They were well-versed. But there were certain things that they just missed. And, and like I said, that really becomes a warning to me. It's, it's really easy to think that we know the scriptures. Maybe you grew up in church and you've been studying them all your life and you, you think you've got it all figured out. And yet there are times in which a simple question, a simple uh, thing comes up and we realize, you know what? We had this huge blind spot and we missed it. The question that I have for you and, and really for myself, because I, I run into the same thing, what do we do then? Do we just forget it and say, oh, no, there's no way that I could ever understand everything? Or do we put up our dukes and say, you know what, we're going to fight for it, and this, this is what I believe, and I'm standing on it no matter what. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to do what I believe because that's what I believe. I hope neither of those. I hope that our response then is to say, you know what, that's a good question. Let me dig in. Let me start looking. Let me, let me re-examine things. Let me take another approach and, and try and understand what the Bible says. Not just because you asked a good question, but because I want to know what the Bible says. I want to know what it teaches. I want to know all of. And that takes years. That takes tons of time. I've talked to some folks and they're like, well, you know, I, I've only been saved for a couple of years and I, I don't know it. I don't understand. That's okay. That's okay. Are you taking steps? Are you working? Are you learning? Are you doing what you can bit by bit? Anyway, uh, that's a little bit of a side note, sorry. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus has a lot of different times in which he interacts with the Pharisees, and they ask him questions, and he asks them questions, and they go back and forth. We get down to verse 41 of Matthew chapter 22. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Christ, the Messiah the promised one of Israel, the one that they knew was coming. What do you know about him? What do you, what do you have to say about him? Is he, or whose son is he? And the, the Pharisees, toe in the party line, the regular answer that, that everybody expected, they said, he is the son of David. Well, why would they say that? What would cause them to think that? We're not going to take the time right now to go to Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, but that's where one of the passages where God promises David that he's going to have a son and he's going to have a continuing line. And, and God starts to give him a lot of promises on that. There are several others. I've got them listed up there. Psalm 89 refers to it. Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 11. All of those point out the fact that the son of David is going to be the Messiah, the promised one, the savior of Israel. And so they're looking forward to that. They want that. That's one of the things that the Pharisees, they had looked, they had studied, they compared, they understood the Messiah is coming, and we're looking forward to that. 
They, they were ready, they thought. But here they're asked a question by that Messiah. In verse 43, it says, He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. They threw up their hands and said, you know what, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to try. Not the right response. He asks them a question, and it's a, it's a tough one, and it's a good one. And it's, it's worth digging into and trying to figure out, okay, how is it that David, David was the greatest king of Israel. He, he started the golden age of Israel. He was given all kinds of promises from God and did great things. Yeah, he messes up too. Well, you know, we acknowledge that. But he was the best king that they had. And God made a promise that, hey, I'm going to send through your line the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. The Jews were looking for him. They wanted to find him. But in their mind, they were looking for someone to save them politically someone to save them from the Roman Empire or the various other empires that had come. They weren't looking for the savior of their souls. They weren't looking for the one who would bring about the complete fulfillment of all of God's prophecies. They weren't looking for the right thing. But Jesus makes it very clear that this is referring to himself, really, to the Messiah, to the promised one. And so how is it then that this is going to take place? How is this stuff all going to work out? Let's turn back to Psalm 110. We find that, that this is specifically talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one who would be that savior. And David recognizes and writes this because God is making a promise He's prophesying, he's setting it out, the Lord says. This isn't David's opinion, this isn't a hope for or a dream for, this is a promise from God. The Lord says, I'm going to do something. The Lord says to my Lord, and David's recognizing, you know what, there's someone higher than me, I'm not the greatest, I'm not the best. Yeah, David's a great king, wonderful things are happening, but there's someone higher and better. It's the one that God has promised. It's the Savior of the world. God the Father is talking to God the Son, to Jesus, in this. And he says, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Okay, that phrase, uh, sit at my right hand, there's, there's a lot of significance tied up in that. What is, what is the right hand? In culturally speaking, in, in Scripture, what is the right hand all about? What does it do? Place of honor, seat of authority, location of power, it's all of those things. And so God, the Father, is saying, I'm, I'm going to seat you at my right hand. That's, that's, I'm going to put you in this position. It's a, a significant position. It's the position of authority and power. It comes up in Psalm 118, verse 16, which says, The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. It also comes up in Romans 8, 34. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, 
who also intercedes for us. It's also the place where you have the king's ear. He's able to talk to the king, and, and the king hears and understands. It's a position of power. It's a position of authority. It's a position of judgment. It's a position with uh, that level of response where, where it can be heard. Um, another one that I've got listed up there is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. I wanted to go ahead and read that one. Galatians, Ephesians, here we go. In Ephesians 1, 19, it says, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in that this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the, fulfill, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I hope that you understand I'm not just saying, well, this is, this is Jesus because I think it is, or this is Jesus just because. This is born out in Scripture that that's who we're talking about. That Jesus is the Lord that David was looking for, and he is put into this position of power and of authority by God. God himself says, sit at my right hand until. So says, I've, I've got a plan, and, and that until is, I've got something that's coming up, when that occurs, that's, that's the reason or the purpose for you to sit at my right hand. Well, what is that? Until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet, the Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. It is God who is the one who will establish this. Um, it's not something that, that he goes out and does for himself. God's the one who puts him in that position of power and of that position of authority. And it's the, the basis for why Jesus is the king, because God installs him as the ultimate king. Now, we get to verse 3, and I'll admit verse 3 is a very challenging one. Uh, it has several figures of speech. They're a little bit difficult to work through. Um, some of those, I think, make more sense in a Jewish mind in, and in an Old Testament culture than necessarily what we're used to. And so they are, they are kind of challenging when we get to verse 3. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Thy youth are to thee as the dew. Um, I, I worked at trying to figure that one out, and it, it's tough. I, please fully understand, that's a, a very difficult one. The best that I could uh, come to the conclusion of was the same as what one commentator wrote. It says, when Messiah comes to rule over his enemies, his people will willingly join in his reign. That's the, the idea here with thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. That volunteer freely is the idea of like a free will offering. They're willing to give themselves up is, is the idea that's being conveyed there. And, and as I was reading through that, I got thinking about uh, what we studied, was it two weeks ago, with uh, Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's the idea that's going on here, is that they will freely offer themselves. They will be a free will offering in the day of his power. So, uh, again, when the Messiah comes 
to rule over his enemies, his people will willingly join him. They will be holy in contrast to the unholy whom Messiah will subdue. They will also be as youthful warriors, namely strong and energetic. They will be as the dew in the sense of being fresh and numerous and a blessing from God. And so that's the picture that's trying to be conveyed there. Like I said, it's it's a uh, several figures of speech and some difficult things to, to process and, and work through. But I think that the idea being conveyed is that we're looking forward to the time when Messiah reigns. When this happens, not only is God going to put him in charge, but others are going to freely join with that. His followers are, are going to join up and be a part of that. They will be um, th- this idea of from the womb of the dawn in youth, um, as the do, all of that is picturing this idea that they will be numerous, they will be a blessing from God, it will be fresh and energetic and strong. And then this idea is then brought out um, in our, our study of Revelation, we've seen where these things come up in chapters 5 and chapter 20, where the followers of Christ willingly come and be a part of his kingdom, and they want to fulfill whatever role he has put for them, and they, they do those things. So that's, that's the picture that's occurring in that. Now, that's just the first section of this passage. And we've seen one of three positions or, or jobs that Christ is going to have, that the Messiah, that the promised one will be. And that's a ruler. That's as king. Well, what's the next one? This one's a, a whole lot shorter in number of verses, but could become this huge, long study. We're not going to take, take all the time necessary to do that. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now I've got to ask you, what is a priest? Okay, a go-between, between God and men, right? You see, people don't have direct access to God. They need somebody, they need something. The Old Testament sets up a priesthood, we call it the Aaron, the, the Levites and the, the tribe of Aaron, or the family of Aaron, sorry. They are the priests that allow that connection between God and man. But that's not what is happening here. We have a different priesthood that's coming up here. Now, there were no priests in Israel who were both a king and a priest. That was not allowed because the priests had to come from the tribe of of Aaron. They had to be a Levite, sorry, the tribe of Levi. They had to be of the family of Aaron in order to be a priest. And so Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, right? That's where the, the kingdom is, is all about, and the kings. So he can't be that kind of a priest. And yet Christ is our go-between, right? Well, the, there's this amazing thing. There's a, a story that takes place back in Genesis chapter 14, where it's just a blip on the map. Uh, you barely even notice it. And if it didn't come up here and in the New Testament, I'm going to guess it would be a lot like a lot of the judges in the book of Judges, where you read the name and then that's about it and it's just gone. Melchizedek comes on the scene. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Now, you got to look at both his name and that title to understand a few things about him. Melchizedek is the the name itself means the king of righteousness and his position is king of Salem is king of peace so just the name and title is is very interesting he's the king of righteousness and of peace and that's kind of cool but Genesis says that he is a priest 
and a king. Now, that's something different. He also comes up later in um, Hebrews chapters 5 through 7, and I would encourage you to take time and dig into that because there's a, there's a lot in there. Um, the example that is brought up in that section has led some to believe that, it, that in the Old Testament he was a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, others conclude that, he was, that Melchizedek was just a, a regular man that points to Christ. If you want to settle that argument and discussion, study out Hebrews. We're not there right now. We're in uh, Psalm chapter 110. In either case, the example um, uses Melchizedek to point to the position that Christ is going to be in, that he is a priest, that he is a go-between between man and God. In doing that, it's a special, unique different one than what the Old Testament Jews were used to and what they were expecting. In fact, it's an eternal one because here God says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That's a pretty sure thing. No questions, no ifs, no ends, no buts. It's going to happen. The Lord has sworn it. Thou art a priest forever, forever and ever. Unlike the Levites who would die and a new king would come or a new priest would come about and a new one and a new one, also, unlike the kings, the, the sons of David who would die or who would fail, in both of these cases, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all of this. He's going to be the king and the priest. We've got one more position that Jesus fulfills. And that's, there's, there's a little bit of a shift that happens in verses 5 through 7. Jesus is then, uh, it, it says the Lord. Now, which Lord is that? Do you remember? Mm -mm. That, that one's not the all caps. It's the capital L lowercase. So this is the Adonai. This is referring to Jesus. So there's, there's a shift that happens here. The Lord is at thy right hand. So Adonai is at Yahweh's right hand. That's the position he's been put in. That's what God is doing. He's going to be the king and he's going to be the priest. Well, what's he going to do? He will... And it lists out six things. We're going to go through them fairly quickly. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift his head. Adonai is at the right hand of God, and he's going to do these six things. He's going to crush the kings or shatter the kings. The idea is that he's going to be victorious over all nations. He's going to, he will judge among the nations. He will be the righteous judge uh, over all disputes. He will fill them with corpses. He's going to be the uncontested victor. There's no one that can stand before him. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Another way of putting that is he will crush the head, which brings to, to mind images of Genesis 3 and the, the prophecies about the Messiah who would crush the head of Satan. Uh, that's fulfillment of prophecy. We get into verse 7. It says he will drink from the brook. This is another of those uh, figures of speech that can be kind of challenging. The, the idea that comes up is that he will be humble. He will, he will be willing to, to humble himself to drink from the brook by the wayside. Um, and we can see that in Philippians 2, verses 7 through 9. Therefore, because he has humbled himself, he will lift up his head. He will be exalted on high. Uh, 
if you want a full and complete understanding of everything that the Messiah is going to do in his ruling as king, as priest, uh, we actually have a video series about that. It's posted on our YouTube. It's the study of Revelation. Only takes about 50 hours to listen through all of them. What we see here is, I, I see your hand, I'll, I'll get to you in just a moment. What we see here is a prophecy and a promise that Jesus is going to do what we see happening in the book of Revelation. And this is pointing forward to that time of all of the, the things that he's going to do as the righteous king. When he comes and reigns and sets up his millennial kingdom, that's what this is prophesying. That's what this is pointing towards, that he will be the victorious king over all things. He will be the victorious warrior that leads his, his army in battle. You, you had a question or a statement? Um, just crush the head. So it's, it's, he will shatter the chief men or the leaders, the head. Yeah. It, it doesn't specify whether it's um, his specifically, who specifically. It's just he will crush the head or shatter the, shatter the chief, the leadership. <coughs> so what? That's, that's how I always like to, to bring things to a conclusion. It's, it's really easy to study things. Um, in fact, I mentioned those 50 hours that you could spend going back, and, and I encourage you to do it. Go back and watch through the, the study on Revelation because there's tons of stuff, and it's so amazing to, to dig into. But so what? What do we do with that? Well, let me ask you a question. Who remembers what the purpose of those 50 hours of the study of Revelation was? Revelation is what? To point to Jesus, right? It's all about pointing to Christ. And so if, if a study of Revelation is, is so that you can nitpick and argue and, and win your battles and, and toe the party line or any of that stuff, like what the Pharisees had studied this passage for, if, if that was your entire reason for going through it, you're missing the point. The point is to point at Jesus. Well, what's the point of Psalm 110? Same thing. It's to point to Christ. It's to point out that he is the ultimate king, the perfect ruler. He's also the priest who brings us access directly to God. He's seated at his right hand. He fulfills a priestly ministry that's better than anything that, that man can ever possibly have. That's what the book of Hebrews is talking about in chapters 5 through 7, is that Christ is the better fulfillment, better than Aaron, better than any high priest that has ever been, because he's after this order of Melchizedek. He is directly with God. He is both king and priest. And one day, he will be the victorious warrior. The whole point of the study of the book of Revelation, the whole point of the study of future things, whether in the Old Testament times when it was the Jews or now in our times and New Testament times when we're looking towards eschatology, the whole point of all of that is to point people to Christ. That's what this psalm does, and it does it very well. It points people to the promised one of Israel. The Pharisees missed it. They missed out that this is pointing at the guy that was standing right in front of them asking them the question. It was pointing to Jesus. And we need to not miss those things. Ultimately, this psalm points to the future hope of Israel, but it also points to our future hope, the ruling of Christ, the millennial kingdom. 
We anticipate, we anticipate the fulfillment of these promises. We long for that righteous ruler to come. We look forward to the kingdom as it is described more fully in Revelation, in Isaiah, in uh, Zechariah, and various other places. Here is just the, the slimmest point towards it. Like, go look at those other passages. Go study those because they tell you all the details. But the point is, we need to worship him. We need to praise him. We need to anticipate this and look forward to it. As I said, uh, we've only got two more weeks that we're going to continue studying Psalms. I know we've not covered all of it. There's lots, lots more. I want to encourage you, study out the Psalms. There's way, way more in here that's really cool stuff. In the next two weeks, um, I do want to continue on. Like I said, next week's is kind of difficult. That idea of God bringing judgment is not pleasant. And, and imprecatory or asking God for that is hard and difficult. But when we realize that he is the righteous, perfect, holy king and ruler and priest who is there not just to bring judgment, but also to bring many to the Father, and we can point people to Christ, so what? That ought to spur us to sharing Christ with others, drawing them in, because now they can willingly come to him. But there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the truth of the matter is that he is Lord. He is in charge. Will they do it willingly? Only if they've heard. How will they hear if we don't tell them? Something to think about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you have revealed to us a future hope. Lord, this, this life is not all that there is. There's so much more. You have prophecy. You have, have things coming. And you've warned us. Lord, help us not to take that warning just for ourselves, but that we would share it with others as well. The world needs to know who you are. That you are righteous and holy and loving. That you sent your only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, we look forward to when you will come and reign in perfection. We desire that. Help us to tell others so that they also would be ready for when that time comes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.